Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is the final freeform interview with BC Thomas. I had planned to include the AMA, but it makes the video too long, so I'll publish that separately later this month. BC gave me more than 10 hours of his time, and so I'd really like to thank him once again for being such a sporting and generous guest. Now, you would have expected that all this interviewing would have put him off me, but I have good news for those of you who have asked for live streams from the channel. We'll run an SR-71 live stream early next year, that's 2021, for anybody who's watching this far into the future. BC has recruited a distinguished panel to take part. We'll have Ed Yielding, who holds the coast-to-coast world speed record in the SR-71. BC Thomas, of course, uh, he the high-time SR-71 pilot. Tom Tilden, who uh, BC speaks very highly of, an experimental SR-71 test pilot. And Bill Flanagan, flight test engineer and uh, an RSO on the SR-71. So subscribe and hit the bell icon to get a notification of when this is coming up and feel free to join the 10% True Facebook page. There's a link in the description to get your questions in ahead of the rush. Finally, other than the AMA with BC, I won't publish anything uh, more this year. Instead, I'll be busy recording and editing some very special content, I think unique actually, that I'll publish in early January. And with that teaser dropped, I'll close by saying thanks to all my guests this year and thanks to all of you at home for giving me the support that you do. Wishing you all a Merry Christmas and sending my best wishes for 2021. Enjoy. BC, thanks for coming back on to 10% True. Fourth time lucky. Hopefully <laughs> ho- hopefully get to finish off this time and you'll, you'll be free to return to your life. We uh, obviously have talked extensively about uh, the SR program and your time flying operational sorties on, on the SR-71. Can you tell us a bit then about what you did after leaving the SR program or, or what you did when you left the operational um, SR-71 world? Well, I, when I, I left the operational uh, squadron in June of 1984 and went to Edwards, assigned to Edwards flying out of Palmdale. Palmdale is um, an aerospace uh, town where uh, the space shuttle was built and the B, B-2 and the B-1 uh, the SR-71 was assembled there. And, uh, anyway, they, the uh, Palmdale was a, a great aerospace uh, city. And uh, so we, uh, the SR-71 had uh, two test pilots, one an operational uh, pilot and the other a experimental Edwards uh, graduate. And I happened to fill both slots. So, but I, And my uh, 
cohort was Tom Tilden. So uh, there were the two of us. Um, I was the operations officer. He was the guy in charge of engineering. And our boss was JT Vita, who was an RSO. And uh, he has uh, the most hours of any person in the airplane as the RSO. And uh, he, he was excellent, excellent, wonderful manager, uh, great friend. So um, we were also in charge of the flight manual. So any change in the flight manual, in fact, we rewrote the entire, the flight manual was not in that good a shape in 1984. It, uh, it had right, right verbiage and everything, but there was, what Tom wanted to do was to uh, make everything standardized. So if you're talking about a switch, you wanted to, to call it the switch that it was labeled in the airplane. So instead of saying battery switch, you might say, uh, turn on BATT, which is the way it was labeled in the cockpit. So we did uh, lots of innovations. Uh, DAFX, the uh, digital automatic uh, flight and the control system, and um, the standby attitude indicator, the, the, the PVD, which is a peripheral vision display using the laser. And then we were working on um, ASARs, uh, side-looking radar, just uh, lots of lots of programs like that. Uh, Every flight that we flew, we flew at max Mach. Well, we flew at Mach 3.2. We flew at Mach 3.3 if we were doing something for the first time, like DAFIX. But every flight that we would fly, we'd fly at Mach 3.2 because that was the normal uh, top speed that the uh, operational units flew. Uh, the operational units were never scheduled to fly any, any greater than Mach 3.2. So, um, and at Mach 3.2, everything is, is hotter, you know, and, and, the, and the big bugaboo is heat. So you have to make sure that all of the, the systems and components are getting the, getting the proper air, air conditioning, as well as operating under those conditions. We figure if it operated under Mach 3.2, then that's, that's good. It'll certainly operate under Mach 3, which is considerably uh, safer. Um, so uh, I was in there. Um, the reason I left the Air Force was uh, it's kind of a sad chapter in my life. But uh, uh, Bruce Hines, who was the Bruce Hines, who was the chief test pilot for Northrop, he and I flew the C-130 together. I was his co-pilot in Vietnam uh, for a couple of flights uh, in our squadron in, in the. I was assigned to Udor in Thailand, but we flew you know, the uh, Airborne Command and Control Center airplanes. And all of the pilots, we, we weren't uh, crews, we were just pilots. So we, we could fly with different people all the time. So anyway, I flew with Bruce a couple of times. He was a recent graduate of the test pilot school. And of course, I had that in my mind. So I, I talked to him about that. And then uh, fast forward to uh, when I went to the test pilot school and Bruce was there at Edwards as a test pilot. So I, I got to know him. Then I checked out in the U-2 and then later Bruce wanted to check out the U-2. So I was Bruce Hines instructor pilot in the U-2. And um, then we went to TDY together, to temporary duty together in, in the U-2. So I knew Bruce very well. So he, um, he has a man after my own heart. He was lieutenant colonel, then he made colonel. So he had the uh, 
he had already sewn the eagles on his on his flight suit and then he decided that he wanted to keep flying well when, when you make colonel you're not a line pilot anymore you have, you have to go to higher headquarters of the pentagon and uh I had the same attitude that Bruce had. I, I didn't want to do that at all. And so Bruce uh, then turned down his promotion to Colonel and uh, left the Air Force and got a job with Northrop and then uh, became the chief test pilot. And he was the guy who had the first flight on the B-2. Well, then fast forward to 1987 when I was at Palmdale. Uh, he called me and said that he wanted to talk to me. So I, I went down to Pico Rivera to talk to him. It was in a, in a safe type thing. He could not tell me what the program was. It turned out to be the B-2. Uh, he could only describe that it was a, a, a new airplane and that uh, he was going to invite me to be part of the, of the uh, crews. They were just forming the crews. And um, he says, I can't put you on flying status right now because it's the, uh, they had a full complement of pilots, but you'd be a flight test engineer, then uh, you'll be in the next slot. It was the, that was the promise. So I, I, I had the best job in the Air Force as being the operational and the experimental test pilot in the SR-71. And I didn't want to leave my job, but uh, I was, let's see, by that time I was 45 and uh, getting a little bit long in the tooth to, to start out as a test pilot. Um, most companies would like somebody around 35 with experience, but not, not 45, for heaven's sake, because usually you have to stop uh, flying at age 60. So uh, I uh, accepted his offer and got out of the Air Force to join Northrop. Well, and I went to Northrop. Uh, Northrop was at Edwards, and I got my first taste of what it's like to be a government contractor. <laughs> this is my first, first, uh, impression they had uh, strict working hours it was 7:30 to uh, 3:42 those are the times we had a cafeteria in the, we were we were at um, south base at edwards and in a very highly classified compound and we were all all, all the people working on the B2 at edwards were all in the same building and they had a lot of strict controls, more strict than we had really for the SR-71 as far as, as uh, uh, classification and everything. We were subject to uh, being searched every time we left the building. There was always a guard that uh, checked us out when we left. Um, the, the thing that really got me the first time was the hours. We were allowed 42 minutes for lunch because there was a cafeteria near us. Not an hour, but 42 minutes. If you weren't there, uh, if you weren't at work at seven, was it seven or seven thirty, whatever? Um, and if you left before three forty-two, there was a timekeeper there that noted that. So you had to have a reason for leaving if you left before three forty-two. So we were kind of less. And of course, in the, in the Air Force, I never operated under those kinds of rules. It was just it was a get the job done type thing. Then we had to, at the end of. Um, Oh, just little things. We had to have a clean desk at the end of the thing. So if, if the inspectors walked in, they would just see a clean desk. Uh, our uh, computers did not have a hard drive because they didn't want anything recorded. 
So you had to put everything on a floppy disk and you know, put the floppy disk. It was just one one <laughs> one bureaucratic uh, uh, roadblock after another. So I had been there that, that the first six or seven months was very exciting because I they took me and let me see what the airplane looked like and it was just fabulous as you know. <laughs> and um, I was in the uh, first ground school to, to operate the airplane. I flew the simulator, which was really neat. And um, then uh, as a flight test engineer, um, my job or one of my jobs was to, the number three airplane was going to be the avionics airplane. I was supposed to write the uh, flight test uh, plan for that airplane. So I did that and I took, you know, going on base and getting uh, oh just little things anyway i had a desk job and it's the first time i had a desk job since i was school and and uh in college so i didn't like the desk job I mean, it was just it wasn't flying and we had three airplanes at northrop uh, kc-135 which was a instrumentation test bed and then we had the um F-16, which is all the, all the pilots who flew the B-2 also flew the F-16. Well, those are those are pretty neat. And then the B-2, but the B-2 hadn't flown yet. As soon as I joined Northrop, they were, the B-2 was supposed to fly in like in six months. Well, they put it off almost a year. So that was the first blow is, well, I'm not going to be doing anything flying-wise for at least six months. Then about six months into my uh, six or seven months, Northrop had a, a, another classified program that uh, they lost the contract on or didn't have a contract on. And so about three or four Northrop pilots came into the B-2. That pushed me back. So now I'm, I'm at least three pilots back. And so by the time I got there, thir about seven months there, I started looking for another job because I thought this was, this was not going to pan out too well. What did you think about that airplane then? What, what uh, because it was so. I think the the first time the public saw it was when they unveiled it. And in fact, I think somebody flew a light airplane over the top of the hangar, didn't they? So they got a, a top down shot. I think Northrop been keen to control what people saw. Uh, but obviously, it's a flying wing for anybody who's not familiar with it. Um, but what, what were your thoughts on on seeing it? And um, you know, what were your thoughts about the planned capabilities of the airplane? Oh, I thought it was great. It's very capable. And, uh, of course, the flying wing is the most efficient way to fly. And, you know, they, they tried it. Northrop tried that back in 1949, and it didn't, didn't work out that well. And the reason is they didn't have a good stability augmentation system because they didn't have digital computers. So um, nowadays, I mean, the, the airplane is totally dependent on, on the, the augmentation, of course. It's a fly-by-wire airplane, so there's no... Uh, it's it's strictly dependent on the the programming of the computers, which they, there's only one that's crashed, and that was that was a problem with the computer icing up uh, the, the icing in the in the pedo system. It was it Guam, Guam, wasn't it? Was it Guam? Yes. Also, yeah. Right. yeah. So it, it's it's a flying wing is very efficient, it's stealthy, and it's uh, got a great flight control system. And, and and your contribution was what? Because so you're you're a pilot in a, in a desk job who's assigned the responsibility of a flight test engineer. And what do you actually you know what, what 
what were you doing? And you know, you said you were working on the avionics aeroplane. What did you do? Well, you, to create the flight plan for a test flight, especially the first test flight, requires a lot of coordination. And for, for instance, you know, I don't know what needs to be tested, so I've got to go around to all the engineers and find out what needs to be tested, where, where does it need to be tested, and what, uh, what flight, what portion of the flight envelope. And then you want, want, to, you want to devise a plan so that you can do all of that as uh, efficiently as possible. And so that, it's a big crossword puzzle, three, three-dimensional crossword puzzle, that you have to put all this stuff together. Um, in the test pilot school, our class, in class in 73, was the first time that we had a separate, not separate, we were all together, but a, um, a class of flight test engineers. Before that, they would take engineers and teach them individually how to do the things that I did at Martha, for instance. Um, and then in 1973, the test pilot school said, you know, this is the discipline of flight test engineering is so important that we better make sure that everybody has this uh, funda- foundational uh, knowledge and experience of how to, how to be a flight test engineer. A flight test engineer does everything, well, let me back up. Uh, so when I went through the test pilot school, I won't say half of it, but maybe 25% of our class was devoted to being a flight test engineer. Now, it wasn't true when I went through, but nowadays, uh, everybody who graduates from the Air Force Test Pilot School is awarded a master's degree in flight test engineering, which is a separate discipline, a separate academic discipline now. Not that many uh, colleges have it, but they, they do, do, do exist. Every Riddle, for instance, I guess. So nowadays you come out with a, with a master's degree in flight test engineering. And so uh, I didn't have a master's degree in flight test engineering, but I had the, had the background. So that's what they put me in. And it was a, a holding pattern until the, uh, a pilot slot would open up. Looking back on it, I don't know that I would have ever flown the airplane because they had the, the pilots that were there who were flying um, didn't leave. <laughs> in fact, one of them is a, it's a, a chief, uh, not the chief pilot, but the chief engineer for North. I noticed he, in, a, in one of the publications I was reading, one of the guys that uh, came in ahead of me then was, is, uh, is helping to run the company. So they don't leave. Well, you're still around. I mean, you could have, <laughs> 79, you could have retired next year. You could have been in there. It was sure. like... It's like I told uh, Colonel Colonel Durian, I don't want to be a flight test engineer. <laughs> no, I got very frustrated uh, being uh, we, we were in cubicles. You know, this is this, in this big building, so I was assigned a cubicle. And uh, you know, in fact, JT Vita, when uh, the SR seventy one uh, program terminated, and he uh, retired from the Air Force, he he took my job, the same job I had, and. Uh, Bill Flanagan was in the same cubicle with me. Do you know Bill Flanagan? He was, he was an SR-71 uh, flight test engineer also, or RSO, test RSO. So, what was the, um, so what was the program that, that Northrop lost then? Uh, you, do, do you know? 
Well, it was a classified program, so I'm not I'm not really sure if I could talk about it. And I brought it. I didn't ask about it, so I really couldn't tell you. I'm just trying to remember because you know certainly in terms of what's been declassified, um, I think Bird of Prey came in the 90s. But but Northrop didn't Northrop had tacit blue in the yes. 80s. So oh, yeah. were you aware of that at the time? No, I, w- I really wasn't. I um, I think I told you I, I saw the Northrop the Lockheed uh, self fighter when I went out to uh, Area 51. I saw that, but I didn't see the Northrop. Bill Flanagan did uh, one time, and he he said when he saw it, he he almost uh, burst out laughing because <laughs> it looked so funny. <laughs> At least the Lockheed looked looked really really neat. <laughs> Those swept wings, it must go really fast, right? <laughs> did you uh, have have you been to the um, the Air Force Museum and, and seen Tacit Blue? Yes, no. That was the last trip I made before the COVID. <laughs> it's, it's worth saying if anybody if anybody has the ability to get out there um, to the Air Force Museum, um, it's it's worth going and looking at the Tacit Blue. In fact, it's a great museum. It's a really good museum. You could uh, easily spend a week there and and still not really absorb all that's uh, that, that's there to be enjoyed. So, I talked to Clay Lacey. One, you know, Clay Lacey. Um, he's a he, he does a lot of the uh, airborne photography. A lot of the movies and things like that. He also had a, a uh, charter service, and he had a whole bevy of airplanes. He had a, a C forty-seven that was in. He, he was also a, a United Airlines pilot. He was a seven forty-seven pilot, and he had a, a, a DC three that uh, United Airlines had, and he put it out in the original colors. It's a very colorful man. And he's still around. He's a great guy. So I, I had talked to him about a job and then uh, cast my, my net out. And uh, United Airlines uh, had, I, I knew about that because a couple of friends of mine who were at Edwards were United Airlines test pilots. So I got in contact with them, put my application into that. And uh, in about January 1990, I was accepted for United Airlines. So I had decided that I would, because United Airlines, their, their, their job was to fly all of the airplanes. Let me back up. Every airline has test pilots, and I said test pilots in quotation marks. Every other airline besides United will take a senior uh, captain in whatever fleet it is, like a 747, and um, instead of flying passengers now, he will be a test pilot. And then test pilot in airlines, the one of the jobs is to fly the airplane after it's in heavy maintenance. Every airplane is sent out using in, in rough uh, terms. Every air, every airplane in an airline uh, gets torn apart about every five years or so. And it's called a heavy maintenance. But they, they literally take the skin off the airplane, take all the stuff out, the instrument panel and everything. And they go in and they do any delayed discrepancies, uh, any safety bulletins, and then do a, a, a check on the airplane. And then they put all the parts back together. Now you have an airplane that supposedly is ready for passengers, but uh, mm, let's check it first. So uh, our job uh, at United Airlines was to fly, that be the first flight after heavy maintenance. And just to give you an idea, for a 747, it would take uh, about 12 hours to do the first flight check. And 
a lot of that was ground checks where we had a very thick uh, checklist book uh, flight test book that detailed all of the um, things that we had to test on the ground and then in airborne we would shut down each engine one at a time and um, make sure that you can you can start it up again on the dc-10 we would fly the airplane on the, on the rat the ram air turbine anyway we'd just fly there and we'd pull circuit breakers fail systems make sure that the backup system would work automatically and everything so uh, the 747 was the, was the most difficult, and then the DC-10 and all that. But anyway, I, we, we flew, I flew a 727, two different types, the 737, three different types, uh, 747, SP-100, 200, and then the 400, and then uh, the 757, 767, 777. United was the first airline to buy the 777, the Boeing 777, and uh, we were we were the first pilots to, to fly the triple seven for United because we did the acceptance for it. So I, I got checked out the triple seven up at Boeing, flying tests with Boeing test pilots, which was very nice, very exciting, and everything. And I really loved that airplane. And then we also flew the DC ten and the DC eight. Uh, the DC eight um, came out of service shortly after I was hired, so I didn't fly that very much. But uh, we flew the rest of them. And so we were, was that five airplanes we were current in all the time. But the, the philosophy that uh, United had was that United would hire uh, test pilots who were graduates of a test pilot school, either Navy or, or uh, Air Force. And then we would fly all the airplanes. And uh, I was in charge of the DC-10, and I know Tom Tilden was in charge of the seven. Oh, Tom also joined me. Uh, he was in charge of 747-400 and others. So uh, that's the way that we divvied up our work. And I, I thought at first it was going to be like a nice flying club. You just kind of go out and fly the airplane. But it was it turned out to be a pretty, pretty important and uh, intensive job. So that was United. And I, I did that from uh, 1990 to uh, 2001. 2001 is when I turned 60. That's also, of course, when... 9-11 happened, and uh, United Airlines went bankrupt shortly after that. They, they have recouped since then, thank goodness. But uh, that's the, that was the time that I retired. After I retired from United, I uh, taught to high school mathematics for three years. And that literally, seriously, was the hardest job I've ever done. Really, it was tough. I first started off with five classes, uh, about 25 uh, students per class, and it's mathematics. So mathematics is uh, homework and it's grading papers. And so I come home and I got about 100 papers to grade. <laughs> and then standing up there and talking that long is not not exactly what I was cut out to do. <laughs> so it was tough. I did that for three years, and then uh, uh, after that, I, that's when I quit my uh, salary jobs, and then I lived on my retirement, and uh, I uh, taught math for the um, youth, de youth detention facility, people who were in trouble with the law, usually for drugs. And um, they, uh, the people who were high school age, of course, had to go to high school, so they brought in people like me. I was a volunteer. I didn't get paid for it. And I taught math, and it was it was that was easy because you talk about 
classroom discipline. <laughs> they had guards there, <laughs> so that wasn't any problem. The biggest problem I had teaching uh, high school was was school discipline. I taught at a uh, boys' uh, Catholic high school, which is pretty famous, really. It was a very, uh, very good school. It still is. But my gosh, those guys. <laughs> I think, as, I think, I don't know, I don't have that much experience teaching, but the Teaching uh, boys and girls together is probably better than teaching boys by themselves because they didn't have the calming uh, influence of, uh, of girls in the class. And they were always trying to outdo each other, you know, to make the life of the teacher miserable. I got no respect. Did you miss... Uh... So, so if you go back to our first interview, you talked about being a child and looking up into the sky and wondering what it was like to fly. Um, did you miss flying then? Yes. Oh, yes, I sure do. I don't fly anymore because I'm not nearly as good as I used to be, and I know that. And so there's no reason for me to fly. I don't fly for a living. And I'm not really needed to fly. So if I had an accident or something, there's just no way to to uh, justify my being in the airplane, flying an airplane. And I just had a birthday. I'm 79 now. And I, I just, I think uh, it's just better that I not fly. Now, I have flown as co-pilot. Yeah, I'll do that. I struggle to get my head around the concept of somebody who flies for a living um, and then completely changes career and does something at one G and zero knots for the rest of their lives. You know, does that take adjustment? Does it, um, does it impact your feeling of self-worth? Um, you know, pilots are typically, um, you know, alpha type A type characters, personalities, you know, the heavy goes that need to be fueled. Um, what was your sort of emotional journey through that experience of, you know, going from flying to teaching maths? Yeah, well, teaching math is fun. <laughs> if the kids would act up, and wouldn't act up. I, no, I, I have not had a psychological problem about that. I, I'm a realist, and I know I know what what is going on. And as you get older, that's or as I get older, um, I just I'm not nearly as good at anything as I used to be, and especially flying. Good heavens, man, I just yeah, you know, I, I struggle for words just talking to you and. I mean, simple words. <laughs> no, I, it, it's, um, I tell you what I, I don't do. I don't go to air shows and I don't uh, hang out at the uh, local um, local uh, airport I do because it hurts too much. That, that, that brings it back. What I do here is I am, uh, uh, I'm married. I've got uh, two, two kids. My son and his wife and two grandchildren live with us so i am busy and i, I my my whole world is 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 there and i just i i think about flying i love it i, I read books uh I look at videos that's how i met you look at your video and um, but as far as getting out and going the last air show i went to was at uh, was at Nellis, and they had uh, well, they had everything there, and it was just—it was just—I mean, it was wonderful to see that. But uh, it just—it did 
bring back so many feelings of wanting to get in that airplane and, and do it again. So I'm, uh, I'm content. What about speaking engagements? You, you, you know, when we were talking offline, and um, I think it's probably okay to say it, that I had to, you know, persuade you a little bit to come and do this with me. Um, you know, do, do you, and I know you have an active sort of engagement with the SR71 uh, sort of alumni. Um, you know, do, does that uh, does that sort of fill a void? Uh, yes. What, what, yeah. And, and yeah. what about what about sort of public speaking then? So would you? Because I know you know Brian Shaw does obviously a really good job, and you've mentioned already that he comes and, and sort of speaks once a year at your local museum, and you go and meet with him, and he's a friend of yours. Um, is it something you thought about doing? Would you? I mean, if you know, assuming well, when, when COVID goes away, would you ever get on the road and go and start doing sort of speaking tours? Um, every time that I'm asked to to give a presentation or a talk, I have done it if I can do it. And I've never been paid for it. Uh, Brian's paid to, to do his his, uh, his speaking, and, and he has a he has a good presentation. I'm mean, much better than mine. Um, I've, I've never taken any money for uh, anything that I've done with the SR71 because they, I'm so grateful that I was able to do it, and it's uh, the taxpayers allowed me to fly that airplane, and, and I just uh, feel like. Uh, I've, I've taken more from the program that I've given. So, you know, I had it's the best time of my life. I mean, it's the, the height of my uh, professional life, certainly. That's why I was reluctant to leave it. But um, the, 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 we have a reunion every two years on the odd years. So it'll be next year in June. They've already put out the, the word that, yes, we're going to have the reunion. So we may all be in mass, but we'll be there. Um, and it's very good to see everybody. And everybody's pretty much in the same boat. We're all a lot older now. And we uh, we have we, you know, we slap each other on the back and, and go to the bar and relive some things. And, hey, do you remember when you did? Yeah, well, I'll remember. Okay. <laughs> that type of thing. So that's very enjoyable. Then uh, a lot of. Um, Air Force, uh, not Air Force, aviation museums, especially if they have the airplane, will uh, have a seminar where they invite us to come in and talk. We don't get paid for it. In fact, we usually pay for our hotels and our transportation. But everybody who does it, and there's, I say, maybe 20 people, maybe 30, who do, do that regularly. And I'm one of the ones that does it regularly, anytime that I can. The last time we did it was uh, a year ago, and then the COVID hit. Um, but with March, Air Force Base, we do uh, virtually every year. And the last time was at the Kalamazoo, Michigan, where the B model is. The only gripe I have about the Kalamazoo, uh, and of course they, they say their hands were tied, is that the B model is, is uh, painted in NASA colors. There's no mention of the Air Force on it. I mean, that kind of galls us a little bit. I mean, NASA had it for three years, and Air Force had it for over 20. And it's got the NASA's. 956 was the Air Force number, and it has some other number on it. Oh, it doesn't. 
you know, like, you know, so we suggested, why don't you at least on one side of it, the side towards the public, <laughs> you put the Air Force markings. So, so looking back then on your career outside of the SR-71, um, what was your, your favorite airplane to fly? Or, or, or which, which did you enjoy? It doesn't have to be necessarily your favorite one, but which did you enjoy because it was the one that you remember the most or were challenged the most by? The primary airplane that uh, we flew in that test flight school was the F-104. And uh, that, that, that was a beautiful airplane. I love that. It was, so that's my second favorite airplane, so the F-104. I flew it for a year. And uh, it was just really, really nice. Uh, one, first of all, it had a tight cockpit. And I, I think I told you that before that I have the opposite of claustrophobia. I, I'm in an airplane. The tighter, the better, I think. I just, it just, for some reason, I just think I'm one with the airplane if it's, if the walls are right here. Uh, the, the 104 is definitely is that way, and, and the U2, but the 104 is pretty neat because it was Mach 2. We, in the test pilot school, uh, I was in the Zoom class, which it, it's the Zoom test. We had, among other things, we had a formal briefing where we had to give uh, results of a, a flight test that was done under Edwards rules. Back of Edwards rules is that you you have uh, sport radar. I forgot what sport stands for. But it's, it's the radar that will tell you your speed, altitude, rate of climb and all that stuff and talk to a flight test engineer on the ground so i did two zoom flights in the f-104 not in the nf but in the, in the normal 104 and we would try to devise ways to get max altitude so um feet mach 2 actually got a little bit more than mach 2 but the interesting thing is the Speed limit on the F-104 is 100 degrees CIT, where you know, on the SR-71 is 427. <laughs> a little bit difference in uh, engine um, performance and capability. So we uh, had to make out through um, engineering, had to say what we think is going to happen, and then we go fly the airplane. And I, they, they also had a 104 simulator at the test pilot school. I spent four hours because you don't have time to read a checklist when you're doing this thing. It happens so quickly. So I, I memorized that. And then uh, I was in the simulator probably at least 10 hours fly, testing this thing, flying this thing over and over and over and over again so that I could do it you know, without thinking, really. And uh, come back and then you give a formal briefing on, on what you, on what we predicted and what we got. And it was done just like a regular test at Edwards. So it was our first introduction to when you do a test, this is what you have to have to accomplish, the coordination. How, how high did you get? I think it was 86,000 feet. It, it was pretty high. Um, and we, we also, we would terminate, we do this right over Edwards. And so coming down like this, go 90 degrees because your airspeed's nothing. I mean, it's a little bit, but not, not too much. And then it, it was 
I mean, it, it wouldn't be zero, well, almost zero G. Very close to zero G, maybe one tenth, two tenths coming down like that. And it just, it just, I can't describe the feeling that was. It was just, it's great. I just love that. And uh, I got to do it twice. I sure would like to do it again. Oh, and we would terminate an engine out uh, landing. Oh, really? Yeah. On, on a dry lake bed or, or a runway? Well, you could use a dry lake bed if you misjudge your runway, but you do for the runway. The runway was, uh, gosh, how long was that? More than 12,000 feet long. And um, uh, we wouldn't secure the engine. I mean, the engine would still be running, but it'd be an idle. Okay. But, uh, the idea was not to touch the throttle after you do the loop and come on down, so just like they did in the X-15 and, the, and the, the other airplanes that they dropped. It was just part of the of the learning thing. This, this is this is the way you become a test pilot at Edwards. <laughs> it was good. It was. It's, it's, uh, you said uh, you said in the first things one of, one of your motivations, or maybe the main motivation, you know, sort of for joining test pilot school was. You know, you wanted to fly as many different aircraft types as possible. Um, is there anything that you wanted to fly you didn't get to fly? You know, notwithstanding the B two, and uh, for professional reasons, you know, being able to continue flying. Um, anything that you wanted to, you didn't get to. Uh, well, I, yeah, the F one hundred, the F one hundred two, the F one hundred six. I didn't get to fly those. I did fly the one hundred one, um, and um, the A seven. I got to fly that. I, did, to get, I got two flights in the A7, but to do that, I had to go through the whole ground school. It, so it, it t- took a while to just to get qualified to fly the A7 because we only we didn't have any dual dual control of A7s. We were all single pilot. So, um, what did you think of that? So that was, I think it was the first fighter with a a full up heads up display, wasn't it? That had the tax symbology and. Yeah. I, yeah, and I tested that. Or I didn't. I mean, it wasn't a test on the thing. It was my way of seeing what it was. On final, uh, this is it's really great. You can fly an instrument approach as though you're in VFR conditions by looking at the heads-up display. You have a flight path indicator, a little blip. It's a flight that shows you where the airplane is heading. And you could also superimpose, put in the ILS thing, superimpose the runway. And so you could be in the weather, you just and put that flight path uh, vector on the end of the runway, and, and when you break out, that's where you're going to be, assuming your INS works. <laughs> be nice to back it up with your ILS. So, but yeah, that was great, and uh, it, yeah, I enjoyed that. I I was not a fighter pilot. Uh, I, mean, I flew fighter type airplanes, but not uh, as as a role as a fighter pilot. And, and so we did some uh, bombing with it, and not we didn't use practice bombs, but it was just the procedure of going up. Oh, we were chased by another A7. The instructor pilot would chase us on that, and uh, and so we learned all of the the falling. I see the bomb line, the falling bomb line, and I've forgotten all that stuff. But put this line on that line, and put that on the target, and. and and it'll release it for you. <laughs> put it in auto. I think they say now put the thingy on the thingy. I don't yes, know. It's, uh, put the thingy on the thingy. So I did find the F four too. The F four was nice, and uh, flew it at Eglin. And uh, this was part of the test pilot school 
uh, trip. We had about a two-week trip that we went around the United States, the Navy test pilot school and everything. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the test pilots, they always say, well, you could do anything. You know, that was the philosophy. I mean, not, not in reality, but the philosophy. And so my first flight in F-4, I was number two on takeoff. We did a formation takeoff. And I'd never been in an airplane before. And I'm flying it, see? <laughs> we broke ground, and I found out one of the characteristics of the F-4 for a new guy is... Uh, PIOs. I got up there and I was like, don't stop. I know. <laughs> Very sensitive stick on takeoff. In our, in our squadron at Edwards, we had a whole bunch of airplanes. <clears throat> and as test pilots, we could fly any of them. So I, I uh, bummed rides in F4s a lot. I, I enjoyed flying that. Usually in the back seat, I would be, but so what. We'd go over to uh, the Dugway uh, range and chase uh, drones. Uh, yeah. Things like that. It's chase. That was a long, long flight, too. We could do that and do it again, do it again. Did you do rotary wing as well? Did you say you flew, as part of the test pilot school, did you fly rotary wing? Did you fly helicopters? We had uh, some uh, helicopters in our squadron at, at, uh, at test tops. And I flew with uh, <clears throat> a good friend of mine. Can't remember his name now. We'll edit this out. Anyway, he <laughs> he, he was a, he was an instructor pilot in the, in the helicopters, and I flew with him several times. But I never mastered the hover. <laughs> and you got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you fly one with wheels, they they, they can uh, they can land uh, they can do a running la- it's called a running landing they can do running landings and, and running takeoffs on their wheels and then you never have to hover. <laughs> so, so what was uh, what was your least favorite uh, type to fly? Oh, my least favorite of all times a DC eight. What a flight control system that was! I, the, my first landing, I, I realized no one ever told me this, but you've got to trim when you're in the flare. If you don't trim in the flare, you're going to go boom. <laughs> I mean, that's what was my. Now, if some old old time uh, DC eight pilot is watching this, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't fly it that much, but I tell you, my impression of the DC eight was not not uh, not favorable. Just from a flying point of view, I'm sure it was systems-wise and everything. Also, it was uh, it was it, it, I flew it when United was about to to get rid of them, but I had never seen a more crude uh, flight uh, engineer a program uh, panel and uh, all that stuff. It just didn't like it. Your last flight then with uh, United was in 2001. You would have um, experienced uh, technology advances in aerospace. Um, From a a pilot's point of view, then sort of the transition from steam gauges and and basic navigation aids and and that sort of thing, all the way through to electronic flight uh, instrumentation systems and uh, GPS and, and that kind of thing. And there is this uh, concept, isn't there, of the children of the magenta line, which is, you know, sort of modern day pilots, not even necessarily modern day, maybe going back to the 2000s, where, you know, the aeroplane shows a, a magenta colored line, you follow it, and, and that's it. What, what's your view on 
um, you know, so the implications of technology advancement to, you know, the aerospace professional. And, um, you know, did you did you sort of see over time um, the skills and the level of ability amongst aircrew sort of atrophy or or just lower um, during the time that you were you were flying professionally? I could see that there would be a tendency for that, for sure. Uh, yeah, the, the, the 777 uh, was the first really, I mean, those ultra-modern airplanes. Uh, I can tell you, my, the first impression that I had that, that brought this fly-by-wire, it was the first fly-by-wire airplane I, I flown to, that, that brought this home was uh, the first time that uh, I did a, a landing pattern. And we, think we were doing a low approach or something and the, the pilot gave it to me and says okay you can take this next flight so turning downwind and I'm on downwind time to configure put the gear and flaps down nothing happens straight I mean it's in every airplane I've ever flown when you put gear down and flaps down yeah yeah something like that you know <laughs> not not that and Whatever airspeed you're holding, that's the airspeed it's going to hold. So, well, assume that you're in flying level. Um, it just—it was a marvelous airplane, and I did make the remark one time that uh, if everything is working well, you would have to be a suicidal maniac to crash the triple seven because it has so much to warn you about that. And then, of course, we had that uh, accident at San Francisco where. Perfectly good triple seven with three pilots on board crashed. So there you go. Uh, that particular crash, I think, was more of a problem of, uh, of pilots being reluctant to say anything. I never flew with a pilot that was reluctant to tell me I was doing something wrong if I you know, to question about something I was doing. Now, when I flew it uh, for uh, United, uh, I was the sixth pilot to be. Uh, hired so and, and then after united uh, after i was, came on board united expanded into europe and south america and at that time we hired about six more pilots it was about 12 or so pilots of us we were all test pilots and we all flew together and uh, we had a crew ladder like we did uh, in the sr-71 and we were captain on this flight the next flight the other guy's going to be captain and so um we flew with each other as captain and first officer. That's the civilian terminology. I prefer pilot and command and co-pilot. Anyway, we would uh, swap off on that. So we all flew with each other. And uh, we, there was a big concept about uh, cockpit management, about pilots being reluctant to, to tell the captain that he's doing something wrong. Or don't you think we ought to land because we're running out of fuel? Things like that. I never flew with a crowd that had any compunction about that. They'd be glad to be happy to tell me if I did something wrong. And it was a good group. I never had any problem with anybody at, uh, at, at United either. It's just a very, we were all dedicated, I think, to do the job. And um, I got a, you know, I don't know if I, I posted, there is a, um, a video that I posted on my, uh, channel on YouTube. That was uh, my landing at uh, 727 at Meg's Field in Chicago. Oh, cool. No, I haven't seen that, no. Well, the landing looks bad. I would say that. It was a gusty, 
Uh, first of all, Meg's Field is about a 3,000 foot runway. And uh, it was, it's no, no longer there. And uh, this is a 727 that they wanted to put at the area, uh, the museum there in Chicago. And the best way to get it there was to land it at Meg's Field. It was pretty close to the museum. So um, the, the um, this is on, this was televised on, this was televised. I didn't know it was gonna be televised, but uh, this happened, I forgot what year it was, but it was, it was a long time ago. And um, to fly the 727 into Meg's Field, it was the first time that a commercial airliner that big had ever landed there. It's a mainly uh, piston driven and some biz jets, but small airplanes. So they had, I didn't know, didn't know they were gonna do it. They had a crowd out there and they had uh, TV cameras and all that stuff filming this landing. Well, I did a short field approach and short field approach for uh, any airplane is about the same. You knock off about 10 knots off the approach speed and you uh, plan to land, you know, on maybe the first foot of the runway. I shot for the first 50 feet of the runway. And uh, to put it down firmly, and, then get on the brakes, reverse thrust, and all that. Well, it was gusty, and there was a crosswind, and and I I foolishly uh, took the ten knots off, and I should should not have done that. So coming in, you see the airplane come in, and as I was flaring, making the uh, the flare, it just swapped ends and, and hit the runway pretty hard and bounced, and the left wing, the wind side, came comes up. The right wing came this close to scraping the. The, the runway and then uh, after it came down it didn't didn't scrape the runway and then i stopped and uh, my goal was to stop the airplane as quickly as possible because the overrun after three thousand feet is lake michigan you don't want to go into that so uh <laughs> and you know kinetic energy being a, a function of the square of the velocity, it's very important to get your speed down. Well, I had the speed down all right. Now, my goal was to stop as quickly as possible, and I think I, I achieved that. I don't think anyone could have stopped that airplane in a shorter distance than I did, but <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't pretty. Anyway, I got a, I got a, when I posted that, I got a very nasty thing from uh, a, uh, one of the union guys at United. Uh, calling me a scab and things like that, and we we were we were non-union pilots. We were management pilots, but we never flew passengers. We, we only flew test, and the Alpha contract did not require the uh, regular line pilots to fly flight test. And I don't think any of them really wanted to. We flew engine out ferries, for instance, on a three or four engine airplane that you could take off with one engine caged. Longest flight I did was from Sydney to uh, Oakland, California. About seventeen-hour flight on three engines in a seven forty-seven. So we did things like that that the line pilots really didn't want to do. But uh, United, I shouldn't even go into all that. <laughs> United was a very union-centric uh, pilot class, and they were always suspect about us and. Uh, we were not after their job or anything. And uh, I, I thought that my sacred duty, and I said it in those terms, my sacred duty was to make sure that the airplanes that we flew were 
safe for the uh, line pilots and for the traveling public. That's, that was our job, was to make sure they were safe. Um, so, so, so you 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 posted the video on YouTube of yes. your landing at Meigs ages ago, um, and somebody responded on YouTube calling you a scab. Yes, because, because you weren't a line man. Wow. Yeah. And so I wrote a letter to him. That, uh, oh, you did? You, you, oh, yes. You, dig- thought, you dignified him with a response. Well, I told him what we were going to do. If you want to stop this, I can get the letter and read it to you. It's a, it was a pretty good letter, I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we can, we can, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is back in uh, 2014 when I got this this letter. I won't give you the guy's name, but he was a uh, an official with Alpha. He said, this is the letter I wrote, and uh, this is what he said. He says, great pilots, question mark, give me a break. They almost lost it. Typical scab management performance. And this idiot puts it on his own page. What a moron. (laughs) This is on my my thing. So I wrote, uh, dear so-and-so. I said, I'm 72 now, and I retired from United as a test pilot in uh, uh, 2001. Got your comments about my video, and gee, you were a little rough on me and my crew who flew this United 727 to Meg's Field about 20 years ago in preparation for its permanent display in Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. As a communicator, as an officer for ALPA, (laughs) You should know that no United pilot who flew for United flight test was ever a scab. We never flew paying passengers at all, period, and certainly not during any labor or strike dispute. We only flew test flights and flights like this one, which were sometimes hazardous, unusual, and not involving passengers, thus not within the UAL Alpha contract. We faithfully tested every airplane coming out of heavy maintenance, flew diagnostic and confirmation maintenance flights, and ferried damaged airplanes for maintenance, including engine-out ferries. We tested and accepted for United every new airplane and flew the retired out-of-time aircraft to their final disposition, sometimes to rather short fields. Our group was divided into two sections, test pilots and flight engineers. All test pilots were graduates of either the Air Force or Navy Test Pilot School, and have um, ATP license. Our flight test engineers, second officers, were also licensed mechanics and our scientific engineers, all with FAA pilot ratings. This is the part I like. Our sacred mission was to assure the safety of all United aircraft, and we took our responsibilities quite seriously. We believe that we work for you, the line pilots, ensuring the airworthiness of your aircraft and safety, and consequently the safety of our traveling public. I believe that we did our job well. Three of our flight test engineers eventually got enough pilot experience to become United Airline pilots, and I named them. I believe they are all United captains now, and I'm sure that we have several friends or acquaintances in common. For my part, I was an Air Force pilot for 22 years. I flew numerous airplanes, including the KC-135 and so forth. I have over a thousand hours of combat uh, time in the C-130 and the Vietnam War. The latter may have been the reason my boss chose me to fly the MiGs delivery. It was not my idea, and it wasn't. MiGs runway length of just over 3,000 feet with Lake Michigan as the overrun. Dispatch had erroneously put in 12,000 more pounds of fuel than I requested 
because they were working off of some standard fuel load. It was a 15-knot gusty crosswind from the left, and as you can tell from the video, the aircraft responded sluggishly with full flaps. It's also the first time I ever landed a 727 with full flaps. I knocked off 10 knots from the published approach speed, standard short field landing procedure, which in retrospect, due to gusts, was a mistake and uh, was subject to the bounce and the crosswind. If I had to do over again, I would not have reduced the approach speed. I, complete, I completed the landing roll in just under 2,000 feet uh, from the approach end. I posted this video because I thought it would be interesting for the general public. There are thousands of people each year who visit the magnificent display in the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, which is a tribute to United Airlines, and I think this video is the only record of its arrival. I've not received any uh, remuneration or accolade for this flight or video, but it's part of the record and deserves to be seen by anyone interested. Thank you for your long service to United, and I wish for you continued good fortune, calm winds, and clear skies. So that was my answer. I thought it was a good answer. I never heard from it. It's a classy answer. It's, it's uh, the, the opposite of the original comment. It's been uh, has been a real experience for me. I'm so grateful uh, to have made your acquaintance. I'm so grateful you gave us the opportunity to listen to you talk about your career and flying the SR. I think it's you know I think it's great that Rich Graham and Brian Shaw have uh, you know sort of um, you know gone out there and done so much to talk to people about the SR. But I think you can never have too many voices, and I think um, you know it's in an important historical record that we've created together here and so thank you very much um i'm hoping we get to do the live stream uh, i know that uh you know some people have, have got all, all sorts of sort of weird and wacky questions they want to ask uh, so we'll, we'll hopefully put that together at some point um in the not too distant future and um but in the meantime just want to say thank you once again appreciate it oh thank you steve it's very 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 good you're a good interviewer I was going. To, I was about to hit stop on the record button, but but luckily I got that bit in. So okay. thanks, PC. <laughs>